Well, good morning. My name is Brad Cheney. Uh, Let's say again, uh, um, happy Mother's Day to the mothers out there. One of my kids this morning said, I'll let you guess which child it was. She said to me, so dad, uh, we have Mother's Day and we have uh, Father's Day. You know, we should have Kids Day too. (laughs) And so I I gave a very father-like answer to that question, which was, you get 363 of them. (laughs) That's the reason we have Father's and Mother's Day. I'll let you guess who that was. But we are in John 13, 14, and 15 today. Over the course of the three years together, the disciples had spent with Jesus. They had heard Jesus teach on love before, but he had never spoken of it the way he did that night in the upper room. In the upper room, Jesus mentions love more than 30 times that evening. He mentions the Father's love for him, his love for the Father, their love for us, and of course, the love that we are supposed to have for one another. And I think you'd agree just right now how timely and relevant these words are of uh, loving one another you know, during the present pandemic. So we're going to bounce around chapters 13, 14, and 15 to consider our love for one another. And, and we must remember that these are the very last hours Jesus had with his disciples. And he is, he is pouring out his heart to them right now. When he says, 1333, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give for you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. 1415. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, (laughs) he goes back, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him And he will come to him, I'm sorry, and we will come to him and make our home with him. A reference here to the Holy Spirit. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then 15.9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, slaves, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everyone that I learned, for, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray briefly. Our Father in heaven, this is Jesus pouring out his heart to his disciples. 
He, he, says, he says love more than 30 times in this past, in, in, in the course of the evening. Help us to, to, to dearly desire this, to, to truly and, and deeply desire to love one another um, in this way. Please, please do this for us. Amen. Alain du Boton, my French isn't very good. <laughs> Alain du Boton is a Swiss philosopher who dropped out of a PhD program at Harvard to write his very first book entitled Essays in Love, which sold over two million copies. But what launched him into even greater prominence was an article that he wrote in the New York Times in 2016 entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Maybe you have already read this, but the article opens up, it's one of the things we are most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. It's partly because we all have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to other people. We seem, I love this line, we seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would simply be, so in what ways are you crazy? <laughs> For Duboton, our problems in relationships usually stem from a lack of self-knowledge. We tend to think that we are not crazy and that we are therefore not very hard to live with, which leads us to place impossibly high expectations on one another. Does that sound familiar? Crucial to our passage, though, is this additional claim that he makes that we don't understand what love really is. We've fallen prey to what he called the romantic view, that love is, is supposed to be instinctive, you, know, you, just, you just know, or intuitive, they just get me. You know. He says, and this is profound, we, we would be much better off if we reexamined not our lovers, but our, our own view of love. Because love is something that must be you know, completely uh, learned. Um, we must grow in our ability to tolerate differences with generosity and demonstrate forgiveness and kindness to those we love. And he concludes by saying compatibility is an achievement of love. Um, it must not be its precondition. I think what's most remarkable about the article is if you look on uh, the page views in 2016, Why We Married the Wrong Person was the most read article in the New York Times. And 2016 was, that was an election year. And that was the year where they had Brexit. And that was the year where we had the, the refugee crisis, the worst refugee crisis um, in an era uh, happened. I mean, evidently this s struck a chord. And though uh, Duboton is not a Christian, his conclusion that we must reevaluate our view of love is actually the very same thing that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples here in the upper room. He describes the love one another uh, uh, exhortation as a new commandment. And if you're, if you're scratching your head wondering, well, how is that new? Because love, love one another, is, is fairly prominent throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? The book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. He, God commanded the Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves. Um, love is certainly there in the Old Testament, so why is this new? 
And the answer to that question, and maybe you already um, realized it when I was reading the passage, it's new in that we are to love one another in the same way that I love you. Love is a cross. Love is a cross. It had never been a cross before, but now love is a cross. And by this we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And really, if, if you take nothing more from the sermon today, if you simply um, hold on to that idea, love is a cross, and, and just kind of drill down into the myriad of different implications of that sentence, love is a cross. Um, I'll be a very happy preacher <laughs> if you take that away. At least two things happen to us when we encounter this love of God in Christ. First, it's amazing. Right? We sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's absolutely, it blows the doors off. It's amazing that we, that we would be loved like this. And then secondly, the second thing that happens is the quote on the front of the bulletin, which sums, sums it up quite nicely. Quote, when man encounters the love of God in Christ, not only does he experience what genuine love is, but he's also confronted with the undeniable fact that he, a selfish sinner, does not in himself possess true love. It's that realization, love is a cross, and I shy away from crosses. Um, I don't possess true love, like, in myself. It kind of cuts us to the core and makes, makes us, if we're being reflective, ask the question, how many people have I ever truly loved? If that's the definition of what it means to love as I have loved you, how many people have I actually loved? Um, how many have I loved to the end? If you remember those words from last week. Um, because we maybe sometimes we're able, we do a fairly good job of starting out to love someone, but it's the whole follow-through <laughs> over the course of time and many years. We're not very good at, at loving and sustaining love to the end. Well, the answer to this, what I don't want you to do in response to the sermon is one of those, you know, grit your teeth, um, grin and bear it. Just go out there and try on your own to, to, to love. We're supposed to love one another. Oh, I'll, I'll try that because we all know that that's a pretty, that's a, a foolish and, and, and unfruitful way of tackling it. I hope to give you a few additional ideas that might help us to love one another. And the first is something that Jeff Francian in our church pointed out to me. A new way for us to consider 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, and this responsibility that we have to love one another. Remember how it begins? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And what Jeff pointed out to me is, you know, God is love. um, And love is kind. And so you see, here here is God. And then here is God acting through Christ in the cross. And then here is us, united to Christ on the cross, and therefore we must learn to act like God in Christ. 
And God doesn't leave us on our own in order to try to figure that out to do it. Rather, he empowers us by his spirit who is sent into our hearts. So let's go back to the beginning of of the passage. God is love. Love is kind. God is kind. God is so kind. He is so, he was so kind to Israel, wasn't he? He was so kind to his people. Um, he, he, did not, he did not consume them as their, their sins deserved, but he very patiently, um, patiently bore with them, eventually sending his son to lay down his life for Israel and for the whole rest of the world. Therefore, we are to exhibit patient love, and our patience is rooted in God's patient love through Christ on the cross. Our, our patient love is rooted in Christ's love on the cross, and the spirit of patience is therefore sent out into our hearts that we might be patient as love is patient. Um, love is kind. God is love. Love is kind. God is kind. God is God is full of hesed. Hesed. I just love to roll the H there, right? But he's, he's, in the Old Testament, we're told he's full of loving kindness, full of it. The Lord has been so kind to Israel. He has been so kind to us, kind to the world. And his kindness is supremely exhibited in Christ's death on the cross. Therefore, our kindness must be rooted in Christ's kindness to us on the cross. And we're not left on our own, but the Spirit is poured out into our hearts to make us kind like that. So do you see kind of the, the, the distinction? I mean, you're rooting it in the, pers- in, in the nature of God and in the revelation of God on the cross in Christ. And our love is rooted in that and it is, in, it is fulfilled. Like both, that's the paradigm and then the spirit is the power. Paradigm and power. It's a new paradigm and power for us to then go and love one another. And that's just a very different way of considering it than just, you know, do your best. <laughs> it really is. Another thing that stood out to me from this passage, a second way to consider this, there's a, there's a cool circularity in Jesus' uh, teaching here. If you read v- with me in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, he writes, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that your, your joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so here's the circle. As we love Jesus, we obey his commands. As we obey his commands, we abide and remain in his love, which enables us, which makes us want to love Jesus and obey his commands. We obey his commands. We remain in his love. And he says, notice that he says that these commandments that he gives us, they are not a ball and chain. They are liberating and life-giving. They are designed to bring us fullness of joy. Like we shouldn't regard Jesus' commandments as a treadmill of rules and limitations, but we should regard them as the shape of a joyful life. And it takes the shape of laying down our lives for one another as Christ did for us on the cross because love is a cross. As we love Jesus, we obey his commands. As we obey his commands, we remain in his, in his love, which enables us to love him more. So beautiful circularity there. And let me remind you that one of his commands, like the toughest probably of his commands, is that we are to love our enemies, which I know you know 
that Jesus said that. But we are to love our enemies. Our love is, is reserved even for our political enemies, our ideological enemies, people at our workplace who stab us in the back, people who have mistreated us. Our love for our enemies is rooted in Christ's supreme ex- exhibit of love for enemies on the cross. He was willing to lay down his life, not simply for his friends, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Before we ever acknowledged him or agreed with him, even when we were yet enemies, he laid down his life for us. And we are to do the same for our enemies because love is a cross. And a a cross even for our enemies. Okay. I'd like to maybe make this, take this one further step and make it more practical with where we're at right now uh, with covid The vice president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary tweeted something out uh, about a week or two weeks ago that caught my eye. I thought, man, this you you hit the nail on the head. He tweeted, prediction, one of the most challenging aspects of COVID-19 recovery will be disagreements over acceptable post-COVID social norms between friends and family. (laughs) Disagreements over post-COVID. COVID social norms between friends and family. How ought we to love one another during these next months as society begins to reopen? Now, I believe that one of the ways the enemy will seek to divide our churches, to divide even our church, is you know, taking our attitudes towards each other on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and, um, and, and causing us to kind of despise each other. So in my own household, I'll give you this example— we have in my home, Cheney home, we have face mask wearers and non-face mask wearers. We also have glove wearers and non-glove wearers. So when I go out into public, I wear a face mask. Um, if I'm in the grocery store, I have a, a face mask on. But my, not all of the members of my family agree with me on that. My adult children do not share those same convictions. And um, and then when Erin goes out into public, she'll wear both a face mask and gloves. But I don't wear gloves out in, in public. We don't see eye to eye on that uh, either. And so, you know, all you have to do is pull up social media to find out how, how very strong the opinions are on both sides. And things can get quick, uh, quickly very ugly. Perhaps you've uh, seen these profiles. There are the cautious those who primarily work from home, follow every aspect of CDC regulations, and prefer to stay conservative about their reassimilation plan. They may believe that it is, that it is everyone else's duty to do the same, to wear masks in public, uh, gloves perhaps too. On the other side, there is, from the cautious, you go to the confident. Those who don't wear a mask, who spend greater amounts of time with people outside their home, who, who don't mind tight proximity, uh, yes, they obey the law, but not necessarily worry about going the extra mile with precautions. They lean towards reassimilation now, regardless of the news, and some think some of them think that this crisis may be way blown out of proportion. And there you have cautious, the confident, in the middle, the mushy middle is the uh, the ca. Cotident, maybe <laughs> those who find themselves kind of doing and feeling a little bit of both. Du Bolton um, speaks spoke about just the importance of tolerating differences with generosity, which you know, as in the early church was so incredibly important because you had 
you have people um, on different sides of the aisle with very strong convictions about, do we eat meat? Do we not eat meat? Do we be just vegetarians? Do we celebrate the Sabbath in this way? Do we, and you know, part of love in the context of the early Christian community was just, can we find a way to tolerate our differences with, with generosity? We you know, I have had to learn to respect my adult children's convictions on this. And um, I, while I'm not telling you not to be fully convinced in your own mind about what you ought to do, I just think at the same time, we must be patient along suffering with those on the other side. And look, I mean, when this crisis is over, there will be plenty of people who got some things right and plenty of people who got some things wrong. And there will be those who blew things out of proportion and there will be those who didn't take things as seriously as they should have. And I mean, right, it's going to be all, and it's just a new frontier that we've never had to navigate before. And we need to make sure that, uh, that we, are, we are motivated by love, both in the convictions that we, that we uh, determine and also, you know, the charity we show to, to everyone else. Finally, uh, how do you train someone in love? It's not, if I want to go out and learn how to play golf, right now I'm working on my tennis game and I can like barely get my arm above my shoulder because I have swung the tennis racket so many times. And, uh, but there are videos that I can watch to learn how to play tennis or, or golf. Uh, how do you learn how to play the violin? You know, there are techniques. But how do you train somebody to love? Um, you can't put that in a Sunday school curriculum Really, the way that God trains us in love is he puts us in a church. He, he puts us in this like, very flawed, imperfect, sinful community where he gives us many, many opportunities to have to bear a cross. And like the longer, more deeply embedded you are in a particular church, without a doubt, the more opportunities you're going to have to bear a cross. And this is where we get trained. Uh, and it be- can become very, very difficult for us um, because people in the church can be very, very bad. Paul Miller, you know, Paul Miller wrote that book, A Praying Life, which is one of my favorites. And he, one of his, his themes in The Praying Life is how your prayer of desperation, when you come to the end of your rope and you're like, I got nothing left. That prayer of desperation is really one of the favorite prayers of God to answer because you're having to learn to, uh, to rely entirely on him. Well, then he wrote a second book called A Loving Life, and he hits on some of those same things again in The Loving Life. He says that, you know, when the Bible says, love one another as Christ loved you, it is asking you for something so difficult, so difficult, and so far-reaching, you cannot do it on your own. Like the kind of love God wants us to have for one another is so far beyond us. For you to, to love anybody, to truly love anybody, your energy has to come from God and the Holy Spirit and not the person that you're loving. And indeed, the more difficult the situation, the more you are forced into utter dependence on God. When you know without a shadow of a doubt that you cannot love, uh, your inability to sustain love drives you into dependence into God. It's kind of like the tax collector in the temple who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In overwhelming situations where you are all out of love, you discover that you're praying similar prayers of desperation all the time because you can't get from one moment to the next without God's sourcing your love. 
you realize you can't do it on your own. And you need God and his love to be the center of your love. And then finally, faith in these instances is not a a mountain to climb, but a valley to fall into. There you lean upon God because you cannot bear the weight of love on your own. And one might say even the messier the church, the the better tutorial you have in order to do that very thing that he just described. In conclusion, did I already say that? (laughs) But um, God can sustain us to love one another. And we know this because God is love. That can only be said of the God of the Bible, the God whose name is Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, Allah, Allah cannot be love. And the, the distant deist God of the 18th century, that cannot be love. The pantheistic God of ecological idolatry, that cannot be love. The Unitarian God of American civil religion, that cannot be love. These gods, these idols, they cannot be love. And their love for men, if they can be expressed at all, cannot express what they are in their deepest reality. But the true God, the living God, the God revealed in Jesus and in the scriptures is love. He is eternally and essentially love because he essentially and eternally lives in a communion of love, joy, and peace. As the Father loves the Son through the Spirit, and as the Son responds in love to the Father through the same Spirit. I'm reading another author here. But but that is our God. (laughs) That is our God. And God is not, we would say God is not play-acting. When he comes to us as a gracious father, when he comes to us in Christ as this loving bridegroom, when he comes to us as as a spirit who is love, he's not adopting a pose or clothing himself in in alien colors. God is the love he manifests. The love he manifests is God. And the supreme display of the God who is love, of the love that is God, is the gift of the Son who laid his life down for us on the cross. In this we know what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Love is a cross. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we love you because you first loved us. Oh, give us power, together with Christians all around the world, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God, uh, the fullness of your love. <sighs> Father, forgive us. Forgive us for all the ways that we, we do not love, or, or we, will love, we love poorly in thought, word, and deed. And empower this community, this church, for a new season of loving well. Of loving, you know, our families, our friends, our neighbors, uh, our fellow church members. To your glory. And we pray that it would be through the love we have for our neighbor. Um, I mean, that's what Jesus said. It's, it's not our programs. It's not our poverty ministry. It's, it's the love we have for one another that that they would know that we are your disciples and that you would conquer the world. So please do this. Amen.